So, hello, my name's Alex Rockkeen. I'm a barrister at Thurman Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity and mental health law. And I'm really pleased today to be joined in this quite sunny shed uh, by Dr. Thomas Kabir. And people who have either watched or listened to any of these uh, programmes before will know that I'm really interested in actually the person I'm speaking to do, speaking to introducing themselves rather than me trying to do it for them. So, Thomas, over to you, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to us. Hi, Alex. Thank you very much for having me. So my name is uh, Thomas, Thomas Kabir, and I work for a charity which is based in London, but we actually work all across the country called the McPin Foundation. And what we try to do really is to involve people who have lived experience of typically mental health issues in research in various ways, both in doing research and primary research. And I lead the part of McPin, which is about involving people really, I term it as advisors. So you're advising, um, you're advising teams and in initiatives, things like that, within a mental health context typically, but we're, we're slightly broader than that in reality. Interesting. So, I mean, could you just, just give us a little picture of how you got to do, you know, where, what you did and what you do now, sort of just, just your story so far, before we get into the, the, the advisory work I really want to hear more about. Sure, so I, I did a PhD at UCL um, and uh, I did my first degree there, for, so I spent seven years there, so I knew the place quite well. <laughs> but it was quite a lonely experience, which is quite common for PhD students. You, you know, I, I used to go into a lab on my own at night and, and, and that was it. And, you know, I became quite ill during my PhD. Now, after I finished my PhD, I knew I didn't really want to continue in the field that I was in, in bioinformatics. I wanted to use my research skills and I wanted to have more contact with people. So as it happened, um, there was an agency within Camden where I live and still live, which uh, coordinates voluntary work. And I became a advocate, a mental health advocate for um, a local voluntary sector organization. And I absolutely loved it. So I went to appointments with psychiatrists. I looked up, um, I looked up all sorts of nice guidelines. I even looked up bits of the Mental Health Act. I think I even looked at the Mental Capacity Act once because I had to advocate for someone who um, was under a court of protection order. So that was quite an interesting learning experience. I had to interact with solicitors and other people around that case. So I absolutely loved it. And then, but I wanted to combine my skills in research and my interest in mental health. And I saw a job come up at King's College London which is coordinating a national network of mental health studies um, and, and uh, coordinating the service user involvement in that rather. So I applied for that, did that for five years, really enjoyed it. And then the, my current role in pin came up. So it was bit by bit yeah. and a sort of hybrid of my training and my interests. Brilliant, no, thank you, thank you. So just sort of the, the advisory work, can you just sort of give us a sense of what that involves? At McPen. Sure. So it involves a few different things. So one of the things that it involves is is coordinating the um, advisory work for individual research studies. So when a researcher comes to us, um, they'll usually say, "Look, we've got an idea for doing a research project. What would some people have used mental health services think about that? How could they be involved? How can they improve it?" And so we'll gather together a group of people with lived experience and together with staff, many of whom have lived experience, including myself, we will look at that application, we will try to shape it. 
we will give suggestions, we'll try to shape it, and then we will help the research team prepare an application for funding from a, a research funder, whoever that is. Once that, and research funders typically ask for very well-developed uh, ideas of what people are going to do. You know, they want to know what, they're, what they will be paying for. So there's a lot of work to be done at that stage. And, that, and that's actually a weak spot in the world of involvement. It's not, generally speaking, it's not funded. So it's good yeah. to have an organization like McPin to be able to put some funding into having genuine user involvement at that stage. It's a huge problem in the world of research. So once the, hopefully once it's funded, and of course, as you might imagine, you have to apply for many more grants. Uh, you know, it's not so often that a grant is actually successful. So once you get the funding, then you establish a framework, a structure for user involvement in that study, which is in the plan that you've developed for yeah. services. We've used different models. Sometimes it's a panel. So for the mental health and justice study uh, that me and you, Alex, are involved in, it's a panel called the Service User Advisory Group, made up of, of different service users to get a variety of, of, of opinions and, and views and backgrounds. Or it could be a wider, what we're moving to is a hybrid between uh, having a group and a wider network that contributes to the research in a more ad hoc and more flexible way. And sometimes it is just a network. It depends what the research is. If it's something that um, requires hundreds of people, then having a group isn't always practical and you would want to have a, a sort of a, a wider network. I do other things. So I'm involved in uh, chairing a researcher ethics committee. Um, and I do that within McPin time with the uh, Health Research Authority. And um, I'm not speaking in that capacity now, but that's one yeah. of the things I do. So that gives me a... That gives me an insight into the, how research beyond mental health works and world research ethics and sometimes law actually because we have to look at so many pieces of legislations and judge whether something is, is compatible or looks as if it's compatible with it. So I do my ethics work, I take part in policy discussions, I've uh, chaired groups with Department of Health, um, I, we work with major funders such as the National Institute of Health Research, the Medical Research Council and various uh, initiatives and programs that they, you know, that they run from time to time. And we, we also put out newsletters, bulletins, things like that. And we try to encourage people with mental health issues, generally speaking, to get involved in research. And we have a Twitter handle on the website, things like that. So we always having to write blogs, you know, Twitter posts, go to events. It's quite a wide-ranging job, really. Yes, I'm slightly exhausted just at the end of that list. But the, if, we, if I may just sort of drill down into a couple of those aspects, I mean, you mentioned the Mental Health and Justice Project, which is, is now, I think it's technically in its dissemination phase. And part of that project involved a, a service user advisory group. And I'm very conscious that, that there's language here in terms of that's what the Mental Health and Justice project called it and, and others might use different different terms but I'm just really interested in if I may your kind of well just give us a pen picture of your role within it and then after that I'd be really interested in your reflections on that group over the life of the five-year life of the project. Sure so it's a group of um I'm not sure if I'm going to get the exact numbers right so please do take this with a pinch of salt it's it's about eight, eight people strong eight service users, um, including carers actually, who have taken part in that group. Take part in that group. Um, it's co-chaired co -chaired by, by myself and Dr. Tanya Gogal. 
who uh, is a researcher with, uh, employed within the main mental health and justice study. And it meets three to four times a year. It was a bit disrupted, of course, like everything else during the pandemic, we had to move from meeting in person to virtually. And at each meeting, the general structure was that we would have a welcome and introduction and then we would have an update on the various different parts of the mental health and justice study. And there were quite a few, so there's quite a lot of updates to get through. So you need, we, we always felt that we had to give people a good update, a good understanding of what the project was about and what the various parts of it were trying to do and where they were at at that point in time and what, what the issues were if they were coming up. And during the pandemic, there were many. So after that, we would have specific items that were from what we call work streams, the packages of work that mental health and justice, the mental health justice study had at the time. And it could be, um, I'll pick on an example that you, that you and Tanya were involved in. It could be developing a, a, a new kind of advanced directive called self-binding measure. And you could have a draft and, and say, well, look guys, what do you think? Does this look okay? Does this look too long, too short, too complicated? What is the language like? Because by definition, this is a document that will be handed to someone who may not know very much about it, who's not trained in the law, who's not trained in research, who may not know the terms that the NHS uses. So being able to run it past a group that would have be able to have a little bit of a foot in both camps to some degree, it's very, very helpful. We would typically find that the SUAG would come up with, the sorry, the Service User Advisory Group would come up with suggestions that other people hadn't thought of. And typically things would go, you know, researchers would come to the group and that's an important point we would always at every group have researchers from the main study come to present to answer questions and so you have that direct link between the service user and the research which i think is very important not to have intermediaries yeah I'd, I'd want to come back to that i definitely want to come back to that but just sort of thank you and thank you for giving an example of, of, of one of the sort of concrete examples i mean i'd just be really interested in your reflections on how you think the SUAG, so the Service User Advisory Group, the, the process worked over five years. I mean, that's a sort of long enough time. Obviously, we had two and a bit years of a pandemic massively disrupting things, but a sort of long enough time to see, you know, an idea of what might work, what might not work. And I'm just, I'm fascinated to hear your reflections on, as it were, the rough and the smooth. I think the structure, the structure in the early, in the first couple of years of the study worked quite well. I think get, having regular meetings, having researchers coming, having lots of activity worked. Where it didn't work so well was either when people weren't sure what, what researchers were coming to, the, to them with, where, when it became a bit abstract, where, they, where it didn't relate to their actual lived experience. I think things became a little bit weaker. So we did have a collaboration with the Bethlehem Gallery and that was based around kind of um, artistic, the artistic representations of, uh, of mental health and justice. And I think surprisingly, people found it quite difficult to engage with. People found mm. it quite abstract. People weren't quite so familiar with the language and the way of working. So I, I think that was one kind of weakness where we could have done better to kind of bridge the gap. In other, in other cases, it was just, we were dealing with difficult concepts and I think everyone found them difficult. So there was one work stream on something called metacognition and we all, it was just all about thinking styles or thinking about thinking. So we had to spend quite a few hours actually between us, all of us thinking about, hey, hang on here, what actually is metacognition? 
you know, the, the people who come to these group, these researchers, they've had years of training and we forget that. And it's the same for any profession, you know, you've typically had years of training, years of experience. And so to you, it's, could be, you could acknowledge it's difficult to have that self-awareness, but in reality to anyone else it could be quite difficult. So I think, I think that was one thing that we had to chew over, which would be um, common, I would say, to all advisory groups. I think where it began to, a, a, a kind of weakness was also that we had these fixed kind of quarterly meetings or every three, you know, when really we needed more flexibility. We needed to be able to kind of have a platform to say, okay, something's come up. What do people think? And now I think this is where the pandemic really has, in a sense, helped. It's a byproduct that mm. things like Zoom, things like, you know, instances like Google have built platforms where you can do that. You can put up a document and anyone can comment on it. Or you can put up a video together with a document on, um, I, I won't name it specific platforms, but you, you know, you can do that now because people had to do that during the pandemic. So I think it offers us a much better hybrid way of working, which will enable that, us to give that flexibility to people. That's super interesting. It is, there are so many damn negatives and terrible things which have happened in the pandemic. And it's, it's morale boosting to see the odd sliver of light or the odd kind of silver lining to see there are, and partly that, as you say, different ways of working and recognizing that actually some of those do create advantages um, in collaboration. I mean, one thing you, you said earlier, and I said I wanted to come back to because I'm just really interested, was the, the point you sort of emphasised saying you thought it was important that the researchers were having to present their work directly to the individuals of lived experience and service users rather than intermediary. And obviously you then gave an example of how that could be, there's a certain amount of work which the researchers have to do to make sure they're translating out of the, the thing they're very familiar with. But I'm sort of interested in that you know, how, how best to maximise the chances of those discussions being productive. So the researcher comes with the thing they know an awful lot about and then the individual who knows maybe not the technical thing, but they've got all the different aspects they're bringing to the picture or bringing to the table. Well, you've got to do some work beforehand. I mean, quite a lot of work beforehand. So in just like in any meeting, the real work is outside the meeting, inside the breaks, you know. Yeah, it's not in the meeting itself. So, I, I you know, one bugbear of, of mine is that we're not very good at involving people with, with a learning disability in anything. I mean, I've seen some fantastic examples here and there, but we're not very good. Um, and, and so what you need to do is that you need to, you need to do some work to translate or to kind of like say, look, this is what I'm trying to do. This is why I'm trying to do it. And this is how I'm trying to do it. This is how, how I'm trying to do that for the researcher, really. And to think of some questions. Otherwise, it's a bit of a monolith. You're speaking a language that other people may not have heard or don't understand. It's about a problem that you understand, but maybe no one else does. And how are they meant to comment on it if they don't have some questions to kind of guide them? You may say this is a bit, bit leading, a bit of a leading question, but I actually see it as just setting up a structure for a discussion much as we are having a discussion. If you just said, look, here's a thing you've never heard of, had lots and lots of fancy language, you know, lots of long and technical terms, etc. What do you think? People either think, well, okay, I'm going to say some stuff because this person wants, you know, it's clearly expecting me to say something or you'll say nothing or you'll say something that is actually 
well meant but completely irrelevant. So setting up a structure, having some kind of questions and kind of trying to at least have an attempt of putting it into some kind of what I will call lay language or plain English is essential in my opinion. And that's one of the things in my role that we are meant to try and help researchers do before the meeting itself. Of course, in the meeting itself, there will be different, there will be different preferences. So we had a workshop uh, as part of the mental health and justice study with um, judges. Most people haven't met judges before, it's a bit intimidating, but you know, one-on-one -on -one or in small groups, it works far, far better. And so you can think of trying to structure your meeting accordingly, whether it's one big room of people or small groups of people, whether it's formal, whether it's informal. And so the structure of the meeting needs to be thought out as well and giving people different ways to be able to give feedback. So it, people aren't always, help, uh, aren't always comfortable in speaking in front of others. Yeah. Particularly people who may you know, need some time to be able to process something I'm not used to speaking. I'm not used to speaking in private, let alone anywhere else. And so, you know, giving people the opportunity to put something in writing, to speak to someone in private, if they have problems putting something in writing, so they can put it forward anonymously if needed. Having different ways of giving input, I think, is also very important. Yeah. No, those are really practical. Thank you. I mean, I really practical tips for making me reflect back on my appearances before before the SUAG. But I mean, I should say I, I found personally found the experience of presenting there was a, a couple of quite, I mean, we were quite knotty problems where we were going almost ethically, we want to help here. You know, it's it's not so much a legal problem or a clinical problem, it's a kind of ethical issue. How how should we feel about this? That the very process of having to frame the ethical dilemma in such a way to get a, 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 a response, I found immensely helpful in the kind of pre-preparation. And it was certainly that, I think I've said to someone else, I don't think I've ever been cross-examined quite so effectively as by the different, the different members of the, of the group. Um, I mean, and really effective cross-examination because really clear pointed questions. But I mean, it was, so it was a very interesting interaction for me um, but I'm just trying to think, because it's not really meant to be me rambling about my experiences as much as I enjoyed them. I mean, sort of, we're coming close to the end of our time, but you've given us some really practical tips, Thomas, for the, for the kind of meeting interactions. I was wondering if there are any other things you wanted to kind of flag for other people who were thinking, how do I make sure I get the meaningful involvement of individuals' lived experience in research projects? That's a very large question, but sort of your, you know, the, any top tips can you could give? Well, there's a few things. So there are some organisations which carry out consultations where there's no genuine, um, there's no genuine kind of uh, intent to consult. It really is done because it's, it's in law or it's become part of that organisation's process. You know, it's just something that they have to do. So I would say one thing for fertilizers genuine involvement is make changes. When people say stuff, change what you're going to be able to do. And if you know from the outset that you can't, don't do it or say that you can't do it. The second thing is give a very good introduction to what it is that you're trying to do. You know, what questions that you want to ask people, people won't necessarily understand your organization, what the problem is, you've got to be able to do that. You've got to be able to kind of fund people, involvement costs money, um, particularly at the moment where everyone is under financial pressure, you know, 
paying people or rewarding people in some way is, is, is important. They might have caring responsibilities. So it might be that you need to kind of fund childcare if they need to be able to come to a meeting or so on, uh, pay their travel expenses, things like that. So there's got to, and there's got to be enough people. So there's got to be enough people with a diverse range of experiences. So we typically, we're not very good at involving minorities, people from black backgrounds, or often men, curiously enough, in the work that we do are not, are not as represented as I would like them to be. Uh, and you've got to have enough people. So if you just have one or two pe people, the chances are that one person may be ill or unable to attend and you've got no users sitting on your group. So you've got to have enough people. So you've got to have the will to make changes. You've got to actually be able to make changes, be able to explain to people sometimes why you can't make the changes that they're asking. Um, you've got to have enough people and those have to be, not in a sense the right people, but you know, they've got to be a reasonably diverse you know, diverse group. And you've got to put you've got to put time into it. So just as in any relationship, it's just enough of a relationship. So meeting with people informally, sometimes you'll get more out of it than a three-hour or four-hour meeting, which you've meticulously planned. So take every opportunity that you can just to speak with people and let them speak and give them that structure where they can just speak. I think that's very important. These little private moments and breaks, or you know, when you're just on the train, or you're just on the train home from the meeting, you'll often get a lot more out of that than in the meeting itself. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. Thomas, thank you so much. I, I there is so much. There is so much rich material in what you just told us that I would love to dig further into it. But I do try and keep these to roughly twenty minutes, so I'm going to have to draw stunts now. Um, thank you very much indeed for your time. You're welcome.